0: Let's get started here in Proverbs chapter 6. What I want to do is read to you a man named Dwayne Garrett. He has an excellent commentary on the book of Proverbs. And I want him to kind of set the situation for us here in Proverbs 6, 20 through 35. Listen to Dwayne Garrett. He wrote this. He says, in ancient as in modern societies, both father and mother fear for the sexual future of their child. Their deepest desire is that the child would have a fulfilling and joyful married life. Against them stands the allure of illicit sex personified in the other woman. Parents know that the aftermath of such behavior is disgrace at best and personal destruction at worst. Good. So what I want you to think about is here we have more warnings from Solomon to his sons about going after the other woman. And what we're going to learn today in these verses is that the sinful world will chase after their desires. We as Christians are going to learn in this section of scripture that we have to be those who live not by our desires, but rather by God's revelation. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to help you build some categories today. How many in here have ever heard of the difference between cataphatic and apophatic? Um, Those are some terms that we'll get into. Apophatic has to do with living by mystery and what has not been revealed, whether it be our feelings or mystery or some sort of sorcery. Cataphatic is a religion, as it were, that's based on revelation. Okay, and so we'll talk about that. What we're going to learn today is we want to be those who base all that we do on God's revelation, not our own desires or anything from the world. Uh, Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Jude 10. Jude 10 is a good way of setting this up because in Jude 10 you see that the unbelievers and specifically in Jude's case you had false teachers they live as unreasoning beasts now what does it mean to live as an unreasoning beast it means they don't live by God's revelation and cognitively, rationally, according to the scriptures but they live merely for their own desires if they desire something they go after it that's the idea of the animal, living on instinct rather than rational thought. And you see this in Jude ten. Jude ten, I hope you've turned there. Remember there's only one chapter in Jude, that's why I say Jude ten. It's the same thing as Jude chapter one, verse ten, because there's only one chapter. It says, But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning beasts, by these things they are destroyed. Notice they want things and know things by instinct rather than by reason. Now, back up just six verses. What kind of sins did they engage in because they acted like the animal rather than living rationally by the word of God? Jude 4. Notice it says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Licentiousness there is sexual immorality. Because they live for their desire rather than by the word of God, they showed themselves to be what they really were, false teachers and those who didn't belong to God. That's the seriousness of living by desire rather than revelation. Dear ones, think about in Romans 12:2 when we approach the New Testament, Paul says that we are not to be conformed to the image of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The scriptures enable us to think differently and therefore we act differently. The unreasoning beast goes only by the desires, not by God's revelation. That's really what Proverbs 6:20 through 35 is all about. It's about that warning. So let's get started. And I have to apologize. I have a typo that I didn't catch before I sent the PowerPoint out. But I want you to notice I made the correction here. I'll put my pointer up. Proverbs 620, it should read this. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. Now, dear ones, notice here in verse 20, you see Solomon say, observe the commandment of your father. The term ob- observe there, nutzar, can mean to keep, to observe, to protect, to hold dear. And notice here, it's the earthly father's wisdom. That's what's being referred to here when he says your father. But implied... When Solomon talks about the wisdom that comes from either the father or the mother, is that that wisdom is informed by the scriptures. So the idea would be is if the wisdom is not informed by the scriptures, then don't heed the words that come from your father and mother. So what's implied is that yes, they are basing their wisdom on what God has revealed, that's obviously assumed. And so if you listen to the commandment that comes from your earthly father, because it's informed by the scripture, you're really hearing the wisdom of your heavenly father. I think that that's implied in what Solomon is driving at. Notice also he says, do not forsake the teaching of your mother. It's assumed again and again in the book of Proverbs that the mother and the father are godly and that of course they have the best interests of their children in mind. Now, we all know that there are exceptions to that, and probably more so in our culture than there were in Solomon's day. But remember, the book of Proverbs is putting out often the ideal. It's often putting out the the principle, not getting into every exception. Let me give you an example of that. Remember in uh, Hebrews 9.27, it says, it's appointed once for a man to die, then after that comes Judgment. Well, the rapture is an exception to that. It is an exception. Are we not those who are raptured? Are we physically going to die? Well, I I don't think so. I think we who are alive and are caught up to meet the Lord in the air don't go through the normal death process as those who die prior. And so it's like saying all horses have four legs. And someone says, well, I knew a guy who was a farmer in Kentucky and he had a horse that had three legs, that would be an exception. That would be an exception. Again, normally, 99.9% of the time, those rascals have four legs. In the same way, 99.9% of all people are going to physically die prior to the rapture. But there's going to be a group who will be alive that will, in fact, be caught up to the Lord to meet him in the air and won't die. And so my point being is there's always exceptions in this case with Proverbs. The, the places you don't see exceptions are like, for example, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No, the author is intending that you know that that's universally true of every human being except Jesus Christ who is truly God and truly man. Okay. So again, this is dealing with, this is dealing with generalities. I've often mentioned without generalities you have no wisdom. But without specific examples, you can't build a generality, right? So both require wisdom. Okay, so notice here the father and the mother, they have what's best in mind for their son. And in verse 21, the command is to bind them, that is the commandment and the teaching, continually on your heart, notice, and tie them around your neck. So God's word and wisdom is to always be with the child all the days of their life. And one of the problems that I think many of us have had in our lives, I speak for my own self, and I know from others that we compartmentalize oftentimes the scriptures and our understanding of them. So we'll have one life at Bible study, another life at work, another life when we're out with our friends, another life. That can certainly be true. What Solomon is teaching in Proverbs 6 through 20 through 22 is when you bind them continually on your heart and tie them around your neck, they are always with you. They're not just in Bible study or Sunday morning. They're with you on the golf course. They're with you as you're playing fullback for the high school football team. They're with you at the dance. They're with you on the lake. They're with you wherever you go. That's the idea. They're always with them. All right. Now, Garrett says this again. I love Dwayne Garrett. By the way, Dwayne Garrett has an excellent uh, resource from Zondervan where he can help you learn Hebrew. And he is the one who actually first uh, taught me through another... I sat under one of his students named Jason DeRoshi. And he was a guy who had a Ph.D. in discourse grammar. And that's one of the men who kind of turned me on to learning discourse grammar that I used in helping interpret the Olivet Discourse. Remember Perry Day? Now concerning, that comes from discourse grammar, and I was alerted to that by the man that I sat under who sat under this Dwayne Garrett. So Dwayne Garrett is a great scholar, and listen to what he says. He says, quote, The father and mother's words are considered to be essential to the young man's survival. To the young man's survival. That's exactly right. We often think that money, the degree... All these things are essential for survival, and they are important. Don't poo-poo them. We can know that from general revelation. But most essential to the young man or young woman's survival is having the word of God in them and continually present with them. That's what he's laying out for them. Notice verse 22. He says, when you walk about... Now, remember, stop there. The term walk is the idea of living out your life, living out your Christian life In this case, a believer's life prior to the time of Christ is the idea of living it out. Do you remember um, we see this idea that we should walk out our salvation in the New Testament? Think about um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, who God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we should walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand. What does it mean to walk in those good works? It means we live it out. And so he's talking about living out your life. And the idea is that the word of God and the wisdom that comes from the word of God, so both the commandments and its wisdom, they will guide you. Notice three things. They will guide you. They will watch over you. And when you are awake, they will talk to you. And so three things that the Word of God does for here the believer to Solomon is, number one, they're the guide. Naha. Naha. They're the guide. That's in Hebrew. They're going to guide you. And so instead of you going by your desires down the path of darkness into destruction, the Word of God is your guide, putting you on the path of salvation. There's only two roads in the book of Proverbs, the way of destruction and the way of life. There's only two types of people: the way of the wise and the way of the fool. So, if you're the fool, you disregard the word of God. You go by your desires. You go down the road of destruction. But if the scriptures are your guide, they watch over you. naha, then you're going to be on the path of salvation. Uh, notice, I'm sorry, the guide. That's the guide right here. naha. When you sleep, they'll also watch over you. Shamar, they protect you. They're the protector. They'll protect you from your own evil inclinations, bring yourself to destruction. Uh, Notice when you wake, they will talk to you. The idea here is that they are a counselor, giving wisdom, the siach in Hebrew. They give you wisdom. So those three things are true, and that's why they're always to be with the believer. They're not to be compartmentalized. But always with them. Okay, now keep going here for the sake of time. Verses 23 through 24, we keep reading. It says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life, to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Germans, notice here the commandment, again, the commandment is coming from the father and mother, but implied is it's coming ultimately from our Heavenly Father. It's coming from Scripture. So the commandment is noticed, it's depicted as a lamp and that of light. So without it, we would be walking in darkness. Uh, This past Wednesday, we had our first Bible study, Fundamentals of the Faith, and many of you were here. Uh, Mark Amundsen did a wonderful job teaching the class. And as he taught the class, one of the things that he revealed to us was that God has two different types of revelation. One is what we refer to as general revelation. It's what we can see out our window. Because there is perfection in the cosmos, we know there must be a designer who created it. That's general revelation. But we also can know who God is, and most importantly, from his special revelation, which is the scripture. The scriptures are God's divine revelation the point is without God's general revelation or his special revelation we would be in darkness think about God in the first creative act that he made was light he said let there be light and there was so when he creates light he allows for general revelation when he gives us the scripture we have the light of divine revelation and again the commandment here is the special or the divine revelation. That's what's being referred to. Turn your Bibles if you will to Psalm 119:105. Psalm 119:105. I'll just show you a nice cross reference that you can turn to. It illustrates this point of the scriptures being a light and a lamp to our feet. Psalm 119:105. Psalm one nineteen one oh five. 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And again, that's what distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever. The unbeliever lives, as we saw in Jude 10, as the unreasoning beast, lives according to their own dark desires, walks down the path of darkness towards destruction. But the believer is depicted as the one who is informed, by the scriptures who walks down the path towards salvation. That's the idea. And again, it's all by faith alone. All right. Now, notice here we see the reproofs for discipline are the way of life. The reproofs here are corrections. They are corrections, and these are corrections that you've all witnessed in your own lives where you know that you've done something that you ought not to do and the scripture reproves you. It's, it's your own conscience that has been informed by the scriptures that says, you know, I shouldn't have done that. I know that's wrong. So remember, we talked about the scriptures, the Sundasis, which has to be informed by something outside of ourselves. So every human being has a conscience, but the conscience, which is that internal referee that tells you something is right or wrong, must be informed by something outside of itself. If it is informed by the scripture, it functions properly. If it's informed by the world and the doctrine of demons, it becomes what Paul refers to as a seared conscience. The term for seared, by the way, that we read about in the pastoral epistles is the term cauterizzo. It means to be cauterized. You know if you cauterize a cut, it no longer bleeds. If you cauterized your internal referee, it no longer functions correctly. That's the point. So if people's revelation is not coming from the commandment of God, their reproof from their conscience is not properly informed. Implied here is that the reproof for discipline comes from the scriptures. Notice here the purpose of the reproof and the correction in life. Notice verse 24, it's to keep you from the evil woman. Not to keep you with the evil woman so that you have a good relationship and it just gets better, but to keep you from the evil woman. That's the idea. When it comes to staying away from sin, the Bible teaches us to be cowards in a sense, that we run and flee from immorality, that we flee from temptation. We don't go up to temptation and grab it and wrestle with it, we flee. Joseph didn't... uh, Yeah, exactly. Bob was just thinking Joseph as well. Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife, didn't he? That's exactly the model for us. And so we are to be kept from the evil woman by the wisdom that comes from the scriptures. Notice here, it says, also from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. The adulteress will try to flatter her victims... And by the way, I don't say victim in the sense that it's only the male who's the victim and she's the predator. They're both victims, as it were, of their own immorality. My point is, though, in Proverbs, oftentimes the adulteress, for the sake of the young man, is depicted as the predator. That she will bring you to destruction just as she is on the path to as well. That's the idea. And so her smooth tongue in which she flatters her victims is going to lead to destruction. And so the scriptures then are giving us the way to life. Stay away from the woman that's not your wife. Hey, that rhymed. The way to life is to stay away from the woman who's not your wife. Hey, that preaches. That's exactly the point of Proverbs chapter 6. Dear ones, I want you to think about the new religion that we see here in our day. In our culture, Marxism predominates. Why, does, so, why do so many children, I use children, I, I mean young people, why do they side with Hamas? Why do they? You see rally after rally at these colleges, and they're supporting Hamas. Why? Because the Hamas, is the, they see them as the have-nots. Israel's is the haves, Hamas are the have-nots. Everything is seen through the prism of the oppressor and the oppressed. That's, that's the new religion in America. It's Marxism. And so one of the tenets of Marxism, and it's taught by Karl Marx, is that parents can no longer be the authority. The state has to be. And so one of the way to get rid of the ethics and morality that comes from Christian parents is to change the moral definitions. And so now you have Marxism attacking the nuclear family by trying to break down the sexual barriers and saying it's okay to have this sexual immorality and that sexual immorality. Why? Because if you get rid of the ethics that come from the parents, the state is all you have. And in Marxism and in Hegel's dialectic, it's the state uberalis, the state above all. The state is the final expression of God. Do you realize that Karl Marx was a student of Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel? Hegel, as Bob has pointed out, was a panentheist. He believed that over time, God was drawing all things into himself. And in Hegel's writings, it can be proven that for Hegel, the final expression of God, remember, drawing all things into himself, was the state. That's something that Karl Marx took with him. It's the state above all. The state will define what's right and wrong, not that religion of your parents. That's the idea. Get rid of the parents, get rid of their religion, the commandment, as Solomon is sharing here in the Proverbs, and have a new religion, a new ethical standard. Ultimately, the new ethical standard is one of darkness. It leads to destruction. It leads to death. So I think the great quandary in our society for every person is, are they going to have a religion that's based on their desires that come from the culture or their own feelings Or are they going to have a religion I'm using that in quotes that comes from God's revelation it's either comes from revelation from God or it's going to come from the hidden things the secret things the desires of the wicked man's heart or wicked woman's heart it's one or the other and I think that ties into Deuteronomy 29 29 remember this is where Moses revealed that the secret things, he said, belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to, the, to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. So notice here that the secret things are those things that God has not revealed. Uh, if you look at the term occult, it means secret, to get in contact with the secret things that God never revealed. It can be either our own imagination Think about, again, Jude 10, they were unreasoning beasts, they lived by their own desires, therefore they were deceived. But it also could be from false revelation that comes from the demonic realm. So what you see in the scriptures is that whether the false teaching comes from the demonic realm, it always works from the demonic realm down to man or woman. Now, I want you to see that connection. Turn your Bibles to Colossians 2.8. That the secret things, the things that the Lord has not revealed, the things that the pagans built their hope on and their religion on, there's a connection between the demonic who teaches it to the men who will teach it. Colossians 2.8. In fact, I don't even have it on my note page. I forgot to put it down there. Uh, Bob, could you read it for us? And I know you know this passage very well. Bob has written... In fact, a couple of articles on this, yes, and taught us Colossians 2, eight. Okay. And if you don't mind commenting, feel free to comment on this as well.
1: Okay, Colossians 2, verse 8. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. Now, these elemental forces are the stoichia, yes. and in its basic essence, that word means an organized system it could just mean about the stars and so on. But in this case, it's about the hostile powers. Some of the translations bring that out. So the whole world, cosmos, and its Fallen state is under the power of darkness. Amen. Okay, so the world believes the lie and Conversion means believing the truth. Yeah, the lie says you shall be like God You can sin and not die The truth is that Jesus Christ is the way the truth and life No one comes to the Father, but by him So God is, uh, he speaks truth because God is true. So here, Colossians 2.8, philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition has to do with what the world thinks alienated from God. The world's traditions and religions and thinking is based on the stoichia, the hostile powers, doctrines of demons. Amen. They have different ways of enforcing the lie. Now, I was looking, as you were teaching, I was looking back in Deuteronomy and Exodus, yeah. and people want to know now what's going on and why. Yes. Why the hatred for Israel? Yes. Because of the promises of God. Amen. And uh, one of the covenant promises, and Eric, you'll know better than me, the different places it shows up, but... Uh, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will be with you. Yes. So this promise to Israel, despite the fact that most, even at the time, were in rebellion, still stands. Amen. And that's what fuels the hatred and and murderous desires toward Israel. And... um, we can see that play out, because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. If you look at, for instance, the United Nations, every year, how many resolutions condemning Israel? Yes. Dozens and dozens. And some of the most wicked uh, groups in the world are condemned by the United Nations. Yes. So little Israel, what did little Israel do to deserve all the condemnations of the United Nations. Right. Well, they exist, and even though those promises are yet future for the most part, Amen. somehow, inspired by Satan, they know they're still there.
0: Right, exactly. Okay,
1: and so, thus the hatred is, in our estimation, humanly speaking, irrational. Yes. But from a spiritual standpoint, based on the promises of God, there's a reason yes for this vitriol and hatred and desire for the uh, elimination of Israel does that well said no what passage am I trying to find I'm your God you'll be with me you'll be my people I am with you
0: there's several I, I, there's several I know in Genesis 15 uh, Genesis 13 Genesis 15 and then again in Genesis 17 we okay. have the promises extended uh, one of the land promises that you see with the borders I think is in Genesis 13 yeah also reiterated so you're Genesis. back
1: in Genesis it? exactly there's a renewal in Moses in Exodus 3 I was looking at. yes
0: where he's going to be their God and then and the Sinai people. amen amen
1: yeah I know Deuteronomy reiterates
0: it Bob you know you did such a great job in that article and also teaching us through Colossians what I loved is the point that you made when you showed us the connection between the doctrine of demons the stoichia Yep. and how they go to the human teacher, the wayward human teacher. So what we can say is, well, are these the teachings that come from a wayward man or from the demons? And the answer is yes. Right. It's both. That's how it works. Our, uh, in Ephesians 6, our battle is not with mere flesh and blood, but it's with powers and principalities. It comes from the demons. And as Bob is mentioning, one of the demonic doctrines is that Israel never really had promises that came from God. What's very interesting is you think about this last uh, this battle that's on our mind between Israel and Hamas. Think about back to the term Palestine itself. The term Palestine itself, in my opinion, is an anti-Semitic term. And if you brought that idea to people that work and live in the State Department in the United States, they would completely object to that idea. They would say, no, this area that Israel lives in should be regarded as Palestine and not Israel. Well, let's do a little review of history. The term Palestine is new since the the term was derived by Hadrian in 132 A.D. If you recall in 70 A.D., because of the revolt of the Jews, the Romans overthrew the Jewish revolt and destroyed both Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D., 62 years later, in the year 132 A.D., Hadrian, a wicked Roman emperor who wanted to stick his thumb in the eye of the Jews, renamed the land of Israel Philistia for the Philistines, the mortal enemy of the Israelites, which is translated Palestine. So the idea that Palestine ever existed is a farce. It's actually created by Hadrian as a way to, you know, in an anti-Semitic way, try to claim that this land never belonged to the Jews. Palestine itself is an anti-Semitic term. No, the land is Israel, and what the battle is about is it's about who God is. Is it all of the moon god? Remember Muhammad, he had 360 gods around the Kaaba that they worshipped in Mecca, He chose one because he wanted to be a monotheist like the Jews and the Christians. He chose the moon god. That's Allah, also known as Nana Sin. The moon god, do you ever notice in a lot of the Muslim countries, they have a crescent moon? That's the moon god's representation. When the caliphate takes over the world and Sharia law dominates and all of the Jews are expelled from the land, that moon will be filled in. It will be a full moon. It's a symbol of their desire for conquest the um, another challenge i would put out there is name one passage in the quran in which muhammad ascended from jerusalem well it's not there it's completely made up why do the muslims want the el aqsa mosque and the jews not to have the temple because they falsely claim that muhammad had ascended from jerusalem they made it up because in fact that temple And that region, that whole land, belongs to the Israelites because of the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One day there is going to be a reestablished temple. The Antichrist will set himself in that temple. But according to 2 Thessalonians 2, 4 through 8, Jesus Christ is going to expel that Antichrist and all of those minions who are enthroned with the Antichrist and he will reign upon the earth. And the great promise is that you and I who belong to him will reign upon the earth with him. In fact, that's the great promise in uh, Thyatira, the church, the church of Thyatira in Revelation 2, 26 through 27. Jesus says that we will reign over the nations with a rod of iron. The rod of iron is a reference to Psalm 2, 9 that you and I will share in the messianic rule. And where is that headquartered, that messianic rule? It's going to be in Israel, headquartered in Jerusalem. And so the great plan of Satan in the demonic realm is to teach doctrines to men that these promises aren't true. And let's try to make God a liar and Jesus Christ a liar and try to keep those promises from coming about. Let's try to wipe out the Israelite. Jesus Christ has already come and atoned for sin. Satan lost that battle. So let's make God a liar by trying to wipe out the Israelites and therefore the promises of God. Absolutely, that's a great example of a demonic doctrine. Yes, Um, one demonic way of thinking too that comes along into our culture, one that I was thinking of when it comes to secret things, notice on the screen, was that of Lectio Divina, this idea of a divine or sacred reading. I came across that, oh yes, Scott. Oh Oh, sure. the The mic up. How's that? Better? Okay. When Bob and I had gone to seminary, we had run across people like Carla Dahl at Bethel Seminary who started teaching something called Lectio Divina. And Lectio Divina, they called a sacred or divine reading in which you take your Bible and you think, well, hey, that's great. You're going to take your Bible and you're going to read it. But what you're going to do with your Bible is you turn it into a Ouija board. You say a verse over and over and over like a mantra and you do it in order to still your mind so that you don't understand the scriptures cognitively but you become like the unreasoning beast of Jude 10 and you start to contact your feelings, your desires, and the demonic realm. It's the Colossians 2.8. Are they your bad ideas that you're thinking of? Or the ideas that are given to you by the demonic realm—you don't know. But what's clear is the focus is no longer on the authorial intent of the scriptures, but rather on what you come up with in a secret way. The secret things belong to the Lord alone. And so, whether it's Lectio Divina that was taught by Carl Adal, or it's some other Eastern mysticism or meditation. The goal is to have your doctrines determined by your own feelings, the demonic realm, but not by what has been revealed. By the way, this is one of the big divides that we as Western Christians have with the Eastern Orthodoxy. So this is a big category that I want to help you think about because there was a man, many of you know, the Bible answer man, Hank Hanegraaff. Many of you know that he had converted to Eastern Orthodoxy not long ago. It's been a little while now, I guess a few years. But I want to explain the difference between Eastern Orthodoxy because it plays into this understanding of the secret things versus the revealed things. In Eastern Orthodoxy, they have what's called an apophatic religion. Apo means away from. Phatic comes from fine, which means to speak. So an apophatic religion is one where they focus on what is away from what is spoken. In other words, you focus on what is away from the spoken word. You focus on mystery. In a sense, they're focusing on the secret things. What we believe in in the Western church is a cataphatic religion. Cataphatic, the preposition kata, means according to. Fanai means to speak. It's according to what was spoken. So that's why if you look at Eastern Orthodox services, they have incense and incantations. They focus on not what God has revealed, but on mystery. Dear ones, that's exactly what many in the seminaries, sadly, in evangelicalism were engaged in, is focusing on mystery rather than on revelation. We can't be the same. We have to be those who focus on the things that are revealed, not the secret things. Yes, Eric. Yeah, I have an antidote to this Lectio Divina and everything. Yes. Yeah, um, you know, and this is a, just something I recommend to everybody, you know, take a book of the Bible like First and Second Thessalonians
2: and just spend a month reading it over and over again. And do that,
0: you know, every month for as long as it takes to get through the New Testament. Sure. While you're doing that, read in the Old Testament. So you try to get through the Old Testament once a year. And so... You take a long time, but you're reading God's Word, and it soaks in. And after a while, when you get through the whole Bible, and you've read 10 times or 20 or 30 times each of the New Testament books, you understand it pretty well, because Scripture proves Scripture. You start to absorb it, and so it's uh, just the opposite of this mystical approach. Amen. Well said. Uh, What we're trying to do is understand the Word of God cognitively, And so, for example, when it talks about in the Old Testament where David would meditate upon the Word of God, that term meditation is being equivocated on or changed by the mystics today. For them, meditation means to empty your mind and try to contact your feelings, try to contact the spiritual realm. But it's to empty your mind of cognitive thought. What true meditation is of the Scriptures is what Eric just said is where we focus on trying to cognitively understand the author's intention when they wrote the various texts of scripture. That's true in biblical meditation, and that's exactly what we should be about. So again, what the, oh, I'm sorry, Brian, yes. Um, What I was going to just mention is one thing I think we can put in our minds is kind of a category is, am I going to go apophatic? Remember, apo is the preposition away from. Fane is what is written. Am I going to have a faith that is going away from the scriptures, apophatic? Or is it going to be, according to the scriptures, cataphatic? Can you spell? Yes, um, apophatic, to transliterate it, would be A-P-O-P-H-A-T-I-C. That's apophatic. Cataphatic would be K-A-T-A. Again, K-A-T-A, that's kata. It means according to. Phatic is spoken, P-H-A-T-I-C. So either we're going away from what's written, we're going to the secret things, or we're going to go according to that which is revealed towards the scriptures. That's the big divide between the Western church and Eastern Orthodoxy. Okay, But again, Eastern Orthodoxy, they are not the only ones that believe in an apophatic religion. It is the default position Of so many in the world today, and again, what I'm claiming is that Proverbs six is trying to break us out of that. The scriptures are to be constantly with the youth. Why? Because if unless your morality is based on what's revealed, it's going to be based on some other source, whether your own sinful feelings and desires, or even the demonic realm. It's one or the other. That's why this is so serious. Let me read to you about Hank Hanegraaff's conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy. He went through something called chrismation. It's something that many of you may want to know because he used to be called the Bible Answer Man. When I was an airline pilot, I used to enjoy listening to him on the way to go fly my high speeds. I'd do four of them a week and then I'd be done for the week. So I'd leave late at night. I'd listen to Hank Hanegraaff in the evening. And what he was good at was refuting the word of faith heresy. And so I really appreciated that about him, but then he got worse and worse and worse over time. Listen to chrismation of Eastern Orthodoxy. It is a rite in which a rag supposedly infused with olive oil and divine life is placed on the head of the attendee and this righteousness of God is infused to them. Okay. So literally they say this about chrismation, they say, through chrismation, every member of the church becomes a prophet and receives a share in the royal priesthood of Christ. All Christians alike, because they are chrismated, are called to act as the conscious witness to the truth. Do you notice then that chrismation, first of all, there aren't modern day prophets, that's a big error there. But do you notice this claim that we become part of the royal priesthood in Christ is through this infusion by this rag that is supposedly infused with Christ's righteousness, I thought you and I became part of the royal priesthood by faith alone. So the divide, again, is between are we justified by faith alone or is it faith plus works? Faith alone is revealed in the scriptures, codiphatic. If you don't have the scriptures, you can go apophatic and say, well, no, it's, it's works and faith. This is Decree thirteen of the Eastern Orthodox Church. They say, quote, we believe a man is not justified by faith alone, but through faith and works. Again, what we would say is, no, we're saved by faith alone, and the faith will lead to works. But it's faith alone. Okay? Again, apophatic versus cataphatic. What I'm claiming to you is in Proverbs chapter 6, the idea that the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light unto your feet is the only way that you will stay off of the road to destruction and darkness is by being cataphatic. That you're going to live your life according to Scripture. That all of your desires, everything that you believe, is always run through the grid of Scripture. Am I morally bound to do that? Am I morally free to do that? That's what we're running through the Scriptures all the time. That's how we live. It's according to Scripture, not away from it. Yes, Brian.
2: In regards to the stoichia.
0: You know, I don't think, I don't know if anyone. Um, Chuck, Chuck. Yeah, maybe do that again.
2: I can talk. Not... I'll
0: talk loud. Okay.
2: In regards to the stoichia and doctrine of demons, is it in Marxism? A whole ploy of that is to take over the education system and spread, and I believe that's a modus operandi, of the stoichia and, and the demons. There we go. And uh, we can see that playing out now where over generations of time, this uh, you see these anti-Israeli, Uh, uh, things going on on campuses you see the protests out in New York City so on and so forth well these people are crazed I mean the stuff I've seen and the words coming out of their mouth that's absolutely demonic
0: absolutely absolutely right you look at Psalm chapter 2 the world is going to take their stand against the Lord and his anointed And that's exactly what we see playing out every day. The world takes its stand against Yahweh and His anointed, but He who in heaven scoffs at them, right? Holds them in derision. Yes, Bob.
1: Yeah, it's about uh, objective reality, evidence, rationality, how we know things. Amen. You know, the objectivity of biblical faith versus going into the realm of the Spirit's in mystical things where we have, are not equipped yes and when you go there you'll get beat up your life will be destroyed and your the confusion will be endless yeah because god designed us to be part of objective reality amen i heard a testimony someone asked if i if she could talk to me it was a person from another state who had been deceived by the NAR, and then found found through critical issues the gospel. So I agreed, and I heard the t- testimony, and the idea is go to our miracle meetings, get into the spirit, and these things are going to happen. But what happened to her yeah. was they found out whatever, and they started casting out demons and doing this stuff, And it just catapulted her into a spiritual reality that almost destroyed her. Wow! She couldn't get back out of it Hmm. for a long time. And the thing that got her out was objective reality. Objective reality is your friend. Amen. That's how God made us. Yeah. Rationality, the normal ways of knowing and learning through our senses. I saw you're talking about the people protesting. They don't even believe direct evidence about what happened. There's mothers talking about how they're talking to their son just before the terrorists killed him. There's video. There's everything. We don't believe it. Okay, So as soon as you don't believe objective reality... You are in the realm of the spirits. Yes. And the spirits will, are hostile. Yes. And they have your best disinterested mind.
0: <laughs> That's right.
1: And they will harm you every time. And going back to Bethel, it was there before Car- Carl Dahl. Yes. Because when I graduated in 99, we had to go to a day meditative retreat. Oh. It was part of our requirement. Oh. And so I'd already put in all these years and had all the credits. I went. And so they light a candle. And they're saying, now you need to take a psalm. But they wanted you to sort of meditate their way. Yeah. But they don't know what's in your mind. Right. Okay. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And I took went to my quiet place, got a psalm, and rationally thought about it. Because they can't keep you from doing that.
0: You rebel, yeah. yeah. Then, <laughs> yeah. in an
1: ultimate irony, yeah. the big thing that had to happen was an integrative motif where you write an essay that covers all the important doctrines of systematic theology from a perspective of an integrative motif. Yeah. That was my requirement. So that's what I received during that day of wow. meditation. Because I was in a psalm that was talking about honoring God, mm-hmm. and I determined that honoring God would be my motif, and I was able to write the article, the the essay, turn it in, got rave reviews on it, published it, a critical issues commentary. Oh, yes, objective reality. They can't control your mind. So the bottom line is this: don't believe those who tell you to go into some other state. Mm-hmm. Stay in your rational mind believe objective reality and get sleep you need to have sleep okay that poor lady that god bless her but she's when when she got to the in that other state she couldn't sleep and she was oh wow! that happened to me one time too and over 10 years ago where i didn't sleep for days you lose your ability to function yeah um, yeah, absolutely And so sleep deprivation is the problem But the point is God gave us a thank you Eric You're just yeah. laying it out there What okay, we not. need to hear Thank God for elders who teach us the truth And I thank God for you Don't be deceived Amen. The Bible means what it says Yes there's work To make sure we understand what it says In context But don't go into some meditative state you will be destroyed. Amen. And don't let that happen. Uh, Jan over there. Right now we're replaying on critical issues the testimony of Amy Russell, who had been in kundalini yoga and how God delivered her out of that to the gospel. And it's an amazing story. Wow. Thank you, thank you, Bob.
0: Yes, go ahead. I
1: was just going to say that yesterday I was listening to one of your teachings, yeah. and Jessica talked about the, the music, like from Bethel music and some of that, um, how dangerous that is because of what it does to get you emotional yes. rather than, you know, like you've been talking about, reasoning.
0: Amen. Well said. You know, um, what's interesting is we're talking about we're going to either be cataphatic, or apophatic. Cato again is according to the scriptures, apophatic as we go away from the scriptures. One of the fundamental problems that happened in the 20th into the 21st century was the giving up by American evangelical scholarship, the giving up of the ability to know. And so one of the battles that evangelicalism lost because it never really fought it was in the area of epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? And the two basic camps are, I'm a foundationalist, Bob is a foundationalist. We as a church are based on foundationalism. And foundationalism says that we do have knowledge that we can know for certain. And because we have things that we can know for certain, like the laws of logic, the law of non-contradiction, the law of identity, the law of excluded middle, the law of causality, Because we have those, we can stand and know other things through our sense perceptions, namely the Word of God. And the basis of foundationalism is something called the correspondence theory of truth. Hear me carefully. What the correspondence theory of truth says is that something is true, a propositional statement is true, if that statement corresponds to reality. So if I claim I have $5 in my pocket and you open up my pocket and there was $5 in it, my propositional statement is true because it corresponded to reality. That was rejected for something called coherentism. Coherentism says something is true if the social community agrees upon it. And therefore you have a socially constructed reality that isn't connected to the way the real world is. So an example I used to use when I would lecture on this, I would say, just think about it, the Vikings actually lost four Super Bowls. The way the real world is, is such that we lost four Super Bowls, but if you developed a socially constructed reality with enough people who believe that you actually won four Super Bowls, then that would be true for you. That's why, starting with the Obama administration onward, the Marxist party, focused on narrative building. You build narratives despite whether they're true or not. You just build them. And if you're better at building the narrative, eventually the culture will believe the lie. And so the way that plays out in biblical theology is if you can't know, and by the way, the ideas actually ultimately come from Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant in the Enlightenment, and by the way, I don't think it was always the Enlightenment, but Immanuel Kant, Claim that we don't have as human beings access to what he called the noumenal world. The noumenal world is the world as it is, reality. He said instead, because of our biases and our poor sense perceptions, we're stuck in what he called the phenomenal world. Many of you know what a phenomenon is. If you see the sun rise, it appears as if the sun is rising phenomenally. That's the way it appears. But noumenally, in reality, it's because the earth is rotating. Are you with me? So what Kant was saying is we're always stuck in just the way the world works and we can never come to truth. So what Kant was saying, though, was self-contradictory because what he was saying is that the way the real world is is such that you can't know the real world. Well, if he's correct, then he can't make a statement about it. He's ironically declaring that the way the real world is is such that you can't know the real world, except for the time that I declare to you the way the real world is, is such that you can't know the real world. It's contradictory. All of postmodernity is built on a self-contradiction, but what that enables the postmodern generation theologians to do is to say, we can't know this. We can't be cataphatic. We have to be apophatic. We're going to go with feelings. We're going to go with trying to contact the angelic realm We're going to get away from knowing cognitively because Immanuel Kant told us that we can't. That's why Bob called Brian McLaren, who bought into all of this, he called him the little engine that couldn't. I think I can't, I think I can't, I think I can't. The Bible says, yes, you can and you must. The passage that Bob threw at Northwestern College at a meeting was always revolutionary for me. In John 12, 48, Jesus says, this is that which will be your judge on the last day. The very words I've spoken will be your judge. How can the very words of Christ be your judge if you can't know them as Immanuel Kant and the postmoderns claim? Think about 1 John 5:13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have everlasting life. Amen. It's the apostles in Jesus Christ that say you can know, you must be cataphatic. It's the postmodern unregenerate perishing or saying you can't know, you must be apophatic. That's what Proverbs 6 is ultimately about. Proverbs 6 is about are we going to have a morality based on what's revealed or one that comes from our own sinful, dark feelings? Yes, Scott. I'm, I'm sorry? It's blasphemy. It is blasphemy. Yes, amen. That's what emerging church deal, right? That's exactly what the emerging church was built on. And Bob DeWay has all of that listed and laid out for us in his book on the emerging church that you wrote About 15 years ago, didn't you? Or 12 years? Time flies. I know. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So with that, well, let's, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your scriptures, that they really are a lamp unto our feet. They're a light unto our path, Lord, that we may know what you require of us, that we may live godly lives. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that we live lives that are pleasing to you, I pray as Bob teaches us that you give us ears to hear and help us be doers of the word, not just merely hearers who delude themselves. We also pray for protection today for our brothers and sisters here and also around the United States. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for Israel. Bring about your promises, Lord. Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.